0: The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Awesome. Well, let's look at Luke chapter 9. In the in the days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, that's what we're looking at. He was performing all kinds of miracles. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. I mean, if you look through the Gospels, the work that Jesus was doing in preparation for His crucifixion, these were, these were marvelous things, just miracles, healing people with the power of His Word, and even healing people, raising Lazarus from the dead, and, and doing things even when He wasn't even in their presence. Just the power that He had was just amazing. And here He is, He turns to His disciples, and He says this, He says these seven words, Let these words sink into your ears. Now, this is an expression, an idiom of the day. It was a a common phrase that they would have understood. And I love this about Jesus, just to pause for a moment, that you think, how did he speak? In what manner did he speak to the people? He spoke like a first century Jewish person in the Middle East. He used the language of the day, the idioms of the day, the expressions. He, he didn't speak with this foreign, lofty, heavenly speech. He spoke as a man to people with whom he lived with and grew up with. He was in that context. He became a man and humbled himself and he became like us. And so I want that picture of Christ to really sink into your, to your minds as you think about this. God, fully human, sacrificing his right to the heavenly glories and being with us and talking like us. And this literal construction of this phrase, let these words sink into your ears, literally means, put this in your ear. If he were to say this to us today, he's saying, chew on this. Try this on for size. Take the cotton out of your ears. Put this in your pipe and smoke it. This is what Jesus is Saying He's he's using whatever phrase that you might say to your friend to get their attention and for them to stop, think, listen, behold what you are about to say. And Jesus stops them in the midst of these miracles and says, let these words sink into your ears. He wants them to stop and have careful reflection. And what he says... They don't understand right away. Because the Bible says that it was hidden from them. It wasn't revealed to them. It was actually kept from their knowing. And he says the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. God the Son, Jesus Christ, will give himself over to be killed by men. This is what he is saying to them. This is what the cross is all about. God... Coming down, becoming a man, and giving himself over to death on his own initiative for us. And Jesus says, stop and think about this. Slow it down and reflect on what this really means. And what follows are three very brief conversations that he has with his, with his disciples that I think will help us a great deal in considering the cross as we approach Easter and thinking about the impact of the cross, the meaning, the, the centrality of it, and this is what I think Jesus is wanting his disciples to also wrestle with in these conversations. What does it mean to really think about and consider the cross? And so this is, let's put this in our ear, Okay. Let's think of these three things as we walk through these three conversations. I want us to consider our status, asking the question where do we stand with God? And what does the cross teach us about where we stand with God? Consider our battles. What are our struggles? What are we struggling with? What is going on in our life and in our day? And lastly, consider our focus. Who are we following? What is our motivation? What are we giving ourselves to? And I give you those three before we go through them so that you and your own mind can feel comfortable as we check them off. You're saying, okay, we're getting closer to the end. He's almost done. He's getting done. Uh, The first one is the longest, and so don't use that as a guide for how long the other ones will go. But let's look at this. Consider your status. Where do you stand with God, and how do you know? You know, Luke tells us that the disciples were talking together about who would be the greatest. When Jesus came into power, when he conquered their enemies and his kingdom was established. And the Gospel of Mark in in the Bible gives us a broader glimpse of this conversation about what was going on. And the reason that they were asking this question was because they assumed that when Jesus was crowned king, he would have a cabinet of people. He would have advisors and ministry heads and a chief of staff and Uh, maybe a head law enforcer and these these posts in his in his kingdom that were very good posts posts of power and privilege and responsibility and the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest who would be jesus's right hand man who is going to get the jobs the desirable jobs when jesus comes into great power And Jesus, looking at them and hearing this conversation and knowing the motivation in their heart, he takes a child and places this child by his side. And he says, this child represents me, and I represent God. If you receive this child and therefore receive me and therefore receive God, then you will become great. Jesus is saying, put yourself in this child's shoes. Now, this is not a lesson like somewhere else in the Bible, a lesson about having a childlike faith. Another passage talks about that. But this, I believe, is a lesson about having a childlike status. They don't have any possessions of value. They don't have any uh, title, any credential, any experience that would provide them with any benefit in life. And imagine this child now to, depends completely on you. For their well-being, for their protection, for their nurturing, for their upbringing. And then Jesus says in so many words, put yourself in this position of this child and you will know what it means to be my disciple. I want you to imagine your life without, without all of those things that you have of value. Go back to the days where you... Didn't think about a job or money or status or credentials or your career or what you wanted to do or become. Don't think about that list of, here's how I want my life to play out. Think of your life with no money, no possessions, no hard-earned credentials. And all that you have is Jesus. Is that enough? Is that enough for you? That's what Jesus is wanting them to consider. If you want to be great, you, may, you must become least, is what he says. I love these two Greek words in this, the least and the greatest. They're micros and megas. It's where we get the words micro and mega. And they are for us a extremes on a spectrum, on a scale, from one point to another. Micro being the lowest point on that scale of least value, of least importance, of least increment. It is the smallest. And the mega is the other end of greatest value, of greatest importance. And so much we think about how to move along that scale. Moving along to that other end of the scale where we are important, where we are significant, where we are mega, where we are important in everything that we do. And the way that we pursue it, Jesus says, is in the wrong way. Jesus is saying the measure of a person's greatness is before God is not in his accomplishments, but in his humble dependence on me. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York, and in his book, Jesus the King, he says this, It is one thing to have God as your boss, who is an example for how to live, a mentor, a good influence, It is another thing to have him as a savior, which must replace everything else that we look for, look to for salvation and eternal significance. When God is our mentor, when He's merely our mentor, our teacher, our friend, our advocate, then He is helping us being a better person. We go to Him when we we need advice. We go to Him when we need wisdom. We go to Him when we're when we're hurting and we want Him to help us. But the cross of Christ shows us that He is not merely a mentor. But He is a Savior, not to add to our life benefit, but to completely replace everything else that we were hoping in for eternal significance for salvation. And the cross tells us, like a child, we have no credentials worthy of God's favor on our own. No prior standing with God that, can, that we can boast in, like a child. The cross of Jesus, it, it cripples every ounce of, of pride that we might have that we could go to God and say, look at what I've done. Look at how this is important. Look at the benefit that I've given to you by my habits, by my character. Before I was a Christian, I reasoned often with God. I, I made deals with Him. I, I, I created scenarios that I thought He was very good content with and actually thought i was like oh this is i'm going to present a, a, a scenario to god that we can both live on and that scenario went something like this i thought if god knows everything then he knows what it's like to be me he knows what it's like to be a sinner and to have weaknesses and temptations and to to really struggle through life and i'm trying to be a good person and if he knows everything he knows that i'm trying my hardest and he's a good God, a kind God, a gracious God. And so he will he'll give me the benefit of the doubt. He will deal patiently with me. He will allow me to kind of go at my own pace. So we had this agreement. Me and God had an agreement. You be kind to me, and I will, I'll try my hardest each day. And I'll get there eventually. I mean, these are the things that I actually thought. And instead of my Savior, Jesus was a, he was a compassionate lender who I owed money, and he would just say, you know what, I'll give you another week. I know you owe me a lot, but, you know, it's hard to pay back a lot of money when life is busy, when you have a lot of other commitments, and so just take your time, we'll get through this together. And that's how I thought that God wanted to be presented to me. And then I realized this is not who he is presented to be in Scripture, and this is not who he's presented to be as he hangs on the cross when the cross shows us that He is, he is a Savior. Not just a, a, a mentor, a leader, a, an example. He is, he is the sacrifice for my sin. And I must see Him as nothing less than that. And on the cross, Jesus was treated as if He were us. And therefore, because of the work of Christ applied to sinners by the Holy Spirit through faith, we are treated as if we were Him. That is the work of Christ on the cross. That we need a Savior and nothing less. We need a complete replacement of our identity. A complete resurrection of our soul. The Bible says that. That our In in sin, we are dead, not just sick, not just broken, not just handicapped, but dead, and we need to be made alive. And in Christ, our our status is great, not because what what we have achieved, but because of Him becoming the least, and Him becoming that sacrificial love, sacrificing for us. And we share in this, we share in this Work of Christ on the cross, not through our habits, our character, our achievement, but in humble dependence on Christ and His work. That is faith. That is faith to look at Christ and say, I depend on that work that you have done for me, and not anything that I could bring to you. The cross shows us that it was so bad. How bad are we? So bad in our sin that God had to come and die just to reverse the brokenness. Consider your status. Where do you stand with God? And as we look on the cross, it reminds us that we are right with God, not because of who we are or what we have done or the habits we put in place, but because of the work of Jesus on the cross and nothing else. Let that sink in your ears. Jesus is has been handed over to be killed by men. And secondly, we go on to these conversations, and we should consider our battles. What are you struggling with? Verses 49 to 50, it shows us a a rivalry. It shows us a picture of rivalry. And rivalry happens when two people or two groups or two schools or whatever are fighting over the same thing. They're wanting that same thing, that glory, that that pride, that victory, the trophy, the platform, whatever it is. And consider what these disciples might be going through. They have here a very tight-knit group with Jesus. Twelve guys spending time with Jesus. He's performing miracles. They know they're in the presence of something divine and almighty and and supernatural. And he's going to be ushering in the kingdom. And they're very privileged. They're like, we're really glad that we're here. And now... You see some other people doing things in Jesus' name, and they are not part of your group. You're wanting to protect your reputation. You're wanting to not lose your place in Jesus' group, and in, in your little tight-knit tribe. Imagine in your workplace, if, if you saw a new hire come in, a, a, a younger, more credentialed, more ambitious, more talented worker come in, and you might be thinking, Is my job in danger? And when there is rivalry, there is jealousy and envy and anger and resentment and fear. And you begin to focus a lot on keeping your place and your performance and keeping your place and controlling that place rather than enjoying what you have. And rivalry at its core is meant to protect something that we love that is in danger of being lost. And when we are protecting something that we love, like this, we worry. It bothers us. We become anxious, we worry, we think about it all the time. We can't get it out of our head. And the disciples are protecting something. Their little clan with Jesus. They become territorial about it. And then, they probably think as they go to Jesus, Hey Jesus, we saw some people doing this, but we stopped them. They may be thinking Jesus would reply with, hey, great job, keep it up. But he doesn't. And he actually uses the same word that they use. He says, we try to prevent them. And Jesus says, don't try to prevent them. Don't get in their way. If they are not against you, they are for you. And this rivalry, it's it's a struggle to prevent something from happening. And Jesus quickly ends that struggle. He quickly puts an end to that worry, to that struggle we already see in previous verses here the reason why they were feeling this way, and it, and it, it comes out of their heart. The reason why they, they even enter into these conversations the way that they do is Jesus discerns that it's a heart issue. Their hearts are, are struggling to understand their significance because of Jesus. And in fact, this is where all of our struggles flow from. Our struggles flow from our heart, Our hearts are where we are tempted and tested. Our hearts are where joy and gladness grow into an abundant overflow. And there's something in their hearts that are making them feel out of control and they're trying to grab onto it so much so they take control of the situation. And Jesus says in so many words, let it go. I am in control. If they are not against you, they are for you. And it causes us to think as we look at the cross and draw near to the cross is, What is it that we must have that we don't have that is making us feel incomplete, out of control? What are you and I looking to for comfort that we must only look to Christ for? What is it that we are trying to manipulate or control in our life because the thought of that not being there just brings us to anxiety and fear and concern? Where are we not trusting in the finished work of Jesus as the source of our completeness? To make us feel like we need something else other than Jesus to give us that sense of eternal completeness. completeness. The cross shows us that not only is our position and our status with God drastically changed by faith but our reason to control and to fight and to hold on to our world is released that Jesus is in control that he is not being taken advantage of that he is not caught off guard but he gives himself over to death and when we rest in him we are shielded we are protected we are in his In his secure, in his full approval. And at the cross of Christ, we see that Jesus secures the Father's full approval for us. And we cannot get any more of it. Because there is no more to get. We have everything if we have Christ. If we have Christ and lose everything in our life, we still have everything. And this is what he wants his disciples to see. And this is what we should see. What is it? What is going on in your hearts that is causing you to struggle? And then Jesus on the cross, he shows us, and we need to see him there and saying, you have secured my favor with God. And I can get no more. That changes how we deal with people, how we... How we envy, how we feel jealous, how we pursue relationships, how we control relationships, how we protect the things that are dear to us. It gives us a sense of freedom. And lastly, we go to this in the next conversation, to consider our focus. Who are you following? In verse, well, I hope verse 51 to 56 intrigues you. This is a ridiculous... (laughs) passage Um, let's look at this again in verse 51 when the days draw near he set his face jesus set his face towards jerusalem and they got there and, and and jesus sent some people ahead to prepare the village prepare their staying there prepare their ministry and it says that the people rejected jesus rejected his disciples basically saying you're not welcome here they were not being hospitable to these outsiders, to Christ coming in. We don't want you here. And then his disciples come to him. I love this. James and John said, uh, Jesus, do you want us to uh, rain down fire on them and destroy them all? We can do it over here by the barbecue. This is a great place. Like, I mean, do you see what's going to put yourself in their shoes? What is going on? Do you understand how absurd that is? They're actually thinking this is a great idea. We could do this, we can just be done, no one will know, we can we can make it look like an accident. And Jesus rebukes them. This, like, this is a strong language of not just, not now, guys, but it's like, no, that is not what we are doing, and you are wrong to be thinking in that way. What does the cross teach us? And our relationship with Christ, even being a disciple of jesus does this mean that okay now we have to we have to embrace the the weapons of god to punish those who don't know god who don't know him jesus strongly disapproves of this kind of focus and twice in this passage it says jesus shows us his focus His face was set to Jerusalem. Another idiom of the day, another common phrase which would mean His mind was made up about Jerusalem. His mind was made up about why He came and what He was going to do. Jesus' mind was made up to die for sinners. The surprise of the cross is that Jesus came to live a life of sacrifice before he came to live a life of glory. Jesus' words set him apart. His words set him apart from every other major religion. The purpose in every other religion was to live, to be an example, to show people how to live and to behave. And Jesus' purpose in coming was to die and to be a sacrifice. Different from every other religion. What do, these, what do these religious leaders and figures, why did they come? To be a good example, to show us how to live, to give us some kind of code to walk by. Why did Jesus come? To die, to sacrifice. The surprise of the cross is that, wait, you are doing this for sinners? You're doing this for your enemies? You're doing this for people who have walked away from you? who have not been hospitable to you. That's exactly what he has done. And here's the surprise of Christ, but here's the surprise of discipleship, of following Jesus. The surprise of discipleship and following Jesus is the same. That we are called to live a life of sacrifice way before we are called to reign with him in glory. You can hear at least I can hear, and I hope that you can pick up on it, the confusion in the disciples' responses. These three conversations, they keep guessing. What is the whole point of following Jesus? What does it mean to be with you, to be a a disciple of Jesus? We're going to be great? No, you're going to be the least. Oh, we're going to be on the in crowd? No, I'm going to welcome outsiders who don't know me. We're going to destroy everybody? No, we're going to show mercy. What's going on? What is happening? Jesus, I don't get it. What in the world are we doing here? And the cross, as we draw near to it, shows us that the cross is not this ticket to the front of the class, but it's the work of God to to restore everything in creation to its original good, to reconcile sinners with God, to bring meaning, repurpose, redemption into our lives. And Luke chapter 9, as we've been reading, starting in verse 46, even a few verses prior, in verses 23 to 24, he says this, which is so applicable. And he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Considering the cross means that Jesus' journey is our journey. There's a word I used several months ago in a sermon, and it was called, the word was cruciformity. And I want to bring it back. I want to resurrect it here this morning. Is identifying with Christ in His death and resurrection. And this is the key to a cross-centered life, with identifying with Christ in His death and resurrection. Identifying with Him by, by desiring to put to death the sin in our life that doesn't conform to Jesus. And trusting that His work on the cross, not ours, is sufficient and efficient for for forgiving our sins, for restoring our hearts and minds. And then, and only then, can can we be conformed to His resurrection, the hope in new life, the forgiveness of sins, the security in God's favor through faith. So it is identifying with both. It isn't just like, hey Jesus, I really appreciate you dying for me, thanks. Where do I pick up my pass? But it is drawing near to him and seeing that he died for sinners. And for many, growing as a Christian might only mean becoming a better version of ourselves. But the Bible teaches us that the growing in faith is becoming more like Jesus, not just more like ourselves, but a better version. But identifying with him and loving the things that he loves and hating the things he loves and resting in him and finding our uh, the way that we think about how God feels about us through the eyes and work of Jesus. God is not wanting you to be the best you, he is wanting you to be like Christ. Let these words sink into your heart. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men for you as a substitute. He died to atone for our sins simply because we could not die and atone for them ourselves. We cannot do it. We cannot, we cannot give anything of value. We are like a child. That brings nothing of value, let me finish, nothing of value to earn the merit of God's favor. It takes this sacrificial love. It is hard to love like this. You know, consider if you have a child or have have babysat before or have little nieces or nephews, you think about those kids that are just really easy to love. Maybe there's some kids in your life that, you know, they, they eat when you give them food, they sleep when you put them down, they're polite, they're wonderful to be around, and you say, I love them. But it really requires very little to love someone who is very easy to love, but to love somebody who is very difficult to love, that's when you'll really, that's when you'll ask yourself, what does it mean to love? Real love is sacrificial love, and it's the love that Jesus has shown us. And he calls us into this same journey to identify with that same kind of love. And Easter is, about, Easter is about two things, and I think you'll find yourself in one or the other category. Easter is about Jesus speaking, speaking to lost sheep and welcoming them back home. The lost sheep is uh, Christians... Who, said, who say, where have I forgotten this? Where have I gotten off track? Where have I neglected to keep the cross in my view in my life? Where have I neglected to rest in Christ's completed work for my favor with God? You might find yourself in that place. That's where I find myself in. God, I need this. I need to be reminded of this all the time. I feel like a wandering sheep sometime. Bring me back. And it is at the cross where we see that we are brought back to Christ's work for us. And secondly, you might find yourself in this one, that Jesus is speaking to lost people to put their faith in him for the first time. This is what the cross is about, reminding those who trust in God that nothing else in addition to Christ is sufficient for you And speaking to lost people, saying, everything that you've been pursuing, this self-salvation, this performance-based love from God, is not what I am about. I've given myself for you. It is a time to see this wonderful grace and mercy of God displayed in Jesus Christ. And we're all unworthy of it. We're all not good enough for it for His grace. That is what is so wonderful and amazing about grace. If we could earn it or deserve it, it wouldn't be grace. And you know what? The cross of Christ is not a hidden gem in the Bible. It is not this peripheral theology in Scripture. It pervades all of it. The Old Testament and the New. If we look at it, we see This attitude and work of sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement for the sins of people, starting even way back in Genesis, seeing so clearly in the sacrificial laws of the Jewish people, God giving them the sacrificial law through Moses, where they would sacrifice an animal so that their sins could be atoned for. And then we see in Jesus, who is called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The cross is central. It's the literal crux of all of humanity. Our lives must be all about the cross and Jesus' work on it for us. And we should look at the cross with all of its pain and all of its joy, all of its ugliness and all of its beauty. The pain and the ugliness. We should see that Jesus died for us. He was killed because we deserved To be alienated and punished from God. We deserve to carry His wrath because of our impurities, our sin, our negligence to pursue Him and glorify Him in all that we do. All of us are in that boat. That's ugly. And yet we look at the cross and see it in its joy and beauty. That Christ conquered the cross, that He got our pain and we got His victory. He rose from the dead to give us hope for new life. And we should never grow tired of being reminded of the cross. This Friday is Good Friday, so we draw near to it. And I encourage you in the next week to think about these themes, to think about the cross, to draw near in your own personal devotional times, to to read, to pray, to sing, to let your hearts be open to looking at the cross and what Christ has done for you. And then asking, what does this mean? And we will see that it means that despite our failures, despite our sin, Jesus has accepted and received us. And so we trust Him by faith. Let's do that. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com.